preaching from uh, epistles of Paul, and we have a gospel text this morning, but um, think of this gospel text as a commentary on the passage from our call to confession, Galatians 2.20. In a way, Jesus here is working out the same idea that that Paul is, or I should say Paul is working out what Jesus said. Uh, So our our gospel come, our reading, our scripture text this morning comes from the gospel of Mark chapter 8, 27 through 38. Actually, further than that. Uh, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others said, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. The word of the Lord. Lord, we uh, ask for your spirit this morning. Uh, to illumine our hearts and our minds around these difficult words of Jesus that get at the heart and core of what it means to be a follower of him. Lord, I pray that we would have all of us in in the unique and personal ways that your spirit speaks to us through your word, have a renewed vision of what it means to follow you and what it means to be um, a child of God. Meet us where we're at, Lord, wherever we find ourselves this morning, whether it's um, in a place of doubt or struggle or suffering or apathy. Lord, meet us in your word and by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been exploring a theme um, this fall of what does it mean to be a human being um, conformed to the image of Christ. That's the language the New Testament uses. The Bible talks about human beings as created in the image of God, and the New Testament takes that language of image of God, but it applies it to Jesus and says, Jesus is the true image bearer, and our destiny as human beings is to be conformed to his image. And that's, um, that runs through the whole New Testament. And what that means, though, is when we think about salvation, salvation is God's rehumanization project. Salvation is God making us to be the human beings he originally intended us to be. And the only way we become a true self, a true person, is to um, 
is when we encounter Jesus, who is the true self, the original true self and human. Um, for the next um, four weeks, I want to reflect on uh, four contemporary distortions of our humanity. Um, these are lies that our culture has um, promoted and embraced about what it means to be a human being. And these are things that when we uh, absorb them and embrace them and live them, diminish our humanity and destroy our, and disfigure our humanity. And um, the one I want to address today is the heart and center of all the other ones. It's the sin beneath the sin. It's the deepest you can go, which is the problem, I'm just going to call it the problem of the self. The problem of the self. Uh, if you were to ask me to name the idol that stands above and towers above every other, other idol in American culture in 2021, the answer I would give you is the self. The self as an independent, free, choosing, determining self. The religion of a secular age is the self. And what makes the self an idol is that it has pushed and placed itself at the moral center of the universe and displaced God from that place. Our culture up, you know, adores the self and prizes the self above all other things. And when we displace God from the moral center of the universe and we put ourselves there, at the end of the day, what we end up doing is we, we basically choose reality for ourselves, right? We choose our own reality. Now, this is a, you know, um, this is a religion of a secular age. This is the thing to which all of us are tempted. But it's a very ancient, it's actually the most ancient of all distortions of the self. It is the distortion that led to the disobedience in the garden and the expulsion of the first couple. Remember this story. I want to remind you of a few details of that story. The man and the woman are placed in the garden, and it is a garden in which it's just filled with fruit, filled with good things, things that are pleasing to the eyes that God says, go and take and eat. But there's one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you are forbidden to eat from, but everything else you may eat. And so the man and the woman are in the garden, and the serpent comes to tempt the woman and causes her to question God's prohibition. God had said, if you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. And the serpent comes and says, you will not die. And in fact, God is withholding something from you. And he goes on and he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave it to her husband. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. What did that tree symbolize? What did the knowledge of good and evil symbolize? What was so bad about eating from that tree? The disobedience here was simply to place ourselves and our own understanding of the universe, into the place of God. God said, if you eat of this tree, you'll die. Trust me. <laughs> we're like, no, we're not going to die. 
I'm going to eat of it, right? And it's interesting, it says, Satan, or the, the serpent says, you know, you'll become like God, right? Knowing good and evil. And, and that's essentially what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. We took to ourselves the right to define good and evil. That which was only God as the creator, we as creatures took to ourselves to define reality as we saw fit. This is the most ancient of all, you know, sins that underlie is, is this. We choose our own reality. Even when our choice contradicts nature itself or everything that external reality tells us, we are able to choose our own reality. And this notion of the individual self as choosing and constructing um, the world as he or she sees fit is that enshrined at the very heart and at the very highest levels of our culture today. Uh, there's an infamous statement that you, some of you may have heard. The former Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy uh, said in a famous, a well-known abortion ruling, um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, in which he was upholding, arguing to uphold um, a woman's right to have an abortion. And he, he says this, he says, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. <laughs> at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence and the mystery of life. Now, think about the context in which this statement is made. It is made as an argument about whether an unborn child in the womb of a woman is a human being or not. And he's predicating his argument that however I define existence, I need to be able to be able to define that this is not a human being and that I can abort it, right? Now, this applies to so many areas of life in our culture. I choose my own concept of existence, and I can define what that is, right? The idea of the freedom of the self to define reality as we see fit is the deepest distortion of our humanity. It is the distortion that leads to all other distortions, and it is the source of many and great evils and injustices in the world. Choosing your own reality, building and constructing your own world around your own desires. This is the logic, the sinful logic of the, of the human heart. I mean, we're all doing this. It's not just unique to our culture. But whereas in previous cultures, there's ways, there's things that were in place that actually caused us to resist or have to rub up against what we wanted to do and how we wanted to be. But we live in a culture now in which actually our whole culture is ordered around us being able to become that true and full self, right? Whether from digital sort of world to social media to just the increased amount of material wealth that we can literally live in our own universe. We can construct our own worlds. This is the metaverse, right? It's really a matrix, though. Just a, it's really the matrix. I'm not going to go. <laughs> See, this, this understanding of the self, really, we all struggle with it. It's a temptation for all of us. So the question is, is that how do we overcome this distortion? How do we... How do, we, how do we overcome the temptation to want to choose our own reality, make the world into what we want it to be according to our own desires? And the only way you do this, the only way you not become a distorted self is you encounter a real self. 
the true self. The only way you recover your humanity as a broken image bearer is you encounter a true humanity. And the true humanity and the true self is the person of Jesus. To follow Jesus is to find out what it means to be a true self. To follow Jesus is to discover your real humanity. Jesus says in this, in chapter uh, 8, verse 34, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. This is very paradoxical, right? This makes no sense at all. You're telling me that I find myself by losing myself, that I grab hold of life by actually embracing his death. It's very difficult. Everything in our culture, implicit and explicit, runs against this, right? So the question is, how, what does this mean? How do you actually apply a verse like this to your life? How do you discover the true meaning of yourself in response to Jesus' call? Um, the first thing is this. You will only ever find and discover your true identity when you discover or have an encounter with Jesus' true identity. This is very hard, though. We think that we know who Jesus is. We think we understand his identity and that we have encountered it. But this was hard. It's hard for us. It was very hard for the disciples as well. Because our tendency is to want to relate to Jesus on our terms rather than on his own terms. And one of the themes that runs through all four Gospels has to do with discerning Jesus' true identity. And the reality is, is that discerning his true identity is very difficult. In our story, um, Jesus asked his disciples, so who do the people say that I am? There's been lots of debate, right? There's all kinds of rumors. There's all kinds of speculation. Well, who is this Jesus? He's preaching, and he's an amazing teacher, and he's healing. And they say, well, some think John the Baptist, or some say Elisha, or some say the prophets, and then he comes to them as his disciples. He says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? And that's when Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, you're right, exactly. And the Christ is a technical term here, which means Messiah. And Peter, and, and this is really important in the Gospel of Mark, because up to this point, we're already halfway through the Gospel, nobody yet besides the demons, have recognized Jesus' identity. Nobody's recognized his identity, but here, G- here, Peter, I understand who you are. You are the Christ. And what's interesting is that Jesus immediately says to his disciples, okay, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody who I am. And if you know the Gospel of Mark, actually, there's a number of encounters where Jesus, he heals somebody, or he casts a demon out, and he actually speaks to the demons, he says, and the demons know who Jesus is, but he's like, you're not permitted to tell anybody who I am. And he tells the people he healed, you're not allowed to tell people that I did this. And it raises this really interesting question. Why is Jesus so cagey about who he is and his identity? Why is he so elusive and secretive? I think the answer is is simply that all the people have a very definite understanding of who they think the Messiah is and who they want Jesus to be. And this is not Jesus' own understanding of his person and his work. See, the people 
of Israel at this time lived under colonial rule, under the Romans. And for Messiah, for them, was very political. Messiah will be like David. He'll be like a military leader. He will, he will liberate us from the Roman oppressors and Herod, and he'll restore the land to us and the temple. This is what the people were expecting. This is what the people wanted. And actually, in the Gospel of John, after he uh, feeds a crowd of the, the 5,000, the people are so taken with his power that they, they try to force him to become king, and Jesus has to withdraw and hide himself. See, they have projected their own aspirations and desires of what they want the Messiah to be. And Jesus says, this is not who I am. This is not my mission. That's not my mission. To vanquish and go to war with the Romans is not my mission. And that's not the kind of Messiah I am. And it's actually not the kind of Messiah you need to be truly liberated. And so I think the reason that Jesus is so secretive about his identity in the Gospels is because he doesn't want his mission and his person to be co-opted for another purpose and mission. I think that's the reason. And so when he does reveal his true identity to his disciples, after Peter confesses that you are the Christ, what he does is interesting. It says, so he plainly started to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised after three days again. See, when Jesus reveals his true identity to us, it is through suffering. It's through suffering. And this surprises everyone. I mean, again, if you're expecting a political messiah that's going to vanquish the enemies and restore the land to you, the last thing that you're expecting is this to be a person that suffers, <laughs> dies, and is rejected, and then grows from the dead? What is that about? And so Peter's response is a pretty natural response. I'm sure all the other disciples were thinking it, although Peter is the only one to open his mouth. And he says, this can't be, right? This cannot be. He rebukes Jesus, takes him aside, and explains to him, no, 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 that's not how it's supposed to work, right? Peter cannot accept this. You know, he left everything. Peter left everything. He left his vocation behind. But he didn't do it to follow a Messiah that would fail, right? He didn't, he's not given his life for a failed Messiah, which is pretty much what, what Jesus said is going to happen. But then Jesus, as the Lord, he tells Peter and the rest of them, you cannot tell me and dictate to me who I am and what I need to do. And so it says, and Jesus' words are quite harsh here. He says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter has his own image of who Jesus is and what he needs to do as Messiah, and I think we're the same, right? So Peter was looking, and most people were looking for a political Messiah. A Messiah simply to meet their material needs of political freedom or food or healing. And I think we're not very far off from from people in the first century. We don't necessarily look for a political liberator and a messiah. Maybe in some, some cases we do. But I would say overall what we have is personal Jesus. That's our messiah. We want personal Jesus. Um, do you guys know that Depeche Mode song from the 80s, Personal Jesus, right? I'm not going to sing, sing it. I should have asked somebody to sing it next time if I use this illustration. But the song goes like this. 
reach out, touch faith, your own personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares, your own personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who's there, feeling unknown, you're all alone, flesh and bone, by the telephone, lift up the receiver, I'll make you a believer. This is personal Jesus, right? Jesus who's there, right? Right by the phone. We call him up, right? This is a Jesus that in certain evangelical cultures you're told to invite into your heart, right? <laughs> to help, help reinforce and reconstruct my own reality, right? The Jesus that helps me achieve my personal goals and aspirations, the Jesus that helps me become happy, right? He's there for us, but never asks anything from us. He always accepts me as I am, but never tells me I need to change. This is not the kind of Jesus that we can imagine telling us to pick up our cross and to suffer or saying no to us. But this is the real Jesus. And I, and I, I just want to, you know, I, I want to ask this question. Do you have a Jesus? Do you have personal Jesus? <laughs> Or do you have a Jesus that is able to rebuke you? Have you ever been rebuked by Jesus? Have you ever been rebuked by Jesus? Has he ever contradicted you? Do you have room in your life for a God that says no? And, and here's the thing, you know, there's, Jesus is not here in the flesh. So usually if you've been rebuked by Jesus, it's going to be through somebody in the church that's saying, that's not who Jesus is. And that's not what the Christian life looks like. <laughs> and perhaps they don't always rebuke us in ways we'd like to be rebuked, but nobody likes to be rebuked. But has that, I mean, is, do you have a God that can push back on you, that can say no, no, you, that's, not what it, that's not true, that's not real? I mean, do you have that? If not, most likely you just have an idol, because idols always sort of affirm us. An encounter with the true identity of Jesus means that he becomes the ultimate reference point in our life. He becomes the final and ultimate authority for what is true and good and beautiful. He's the only original self, without beginning, without end, the Alpha and the Omega. His identity is not built around our identity, but our identities are built around his. He doesn't become part of our story, we become part of his story. That's what it means to have a real encounter with Jesus. And to become a true self, you actually have to encounter the true self, Jesus himself. So we only encounter our true humanity when we have an encounter with the real person of Jesus. But the true identity of Jesus really only comes to us and is revealed to us when we entertain his suffering in our life. An encounter with Jesus requires that we entertain his suffering. And I use that word entertain um, intentionally because um, you think about hospitality as entertaining a guest. You, you welcome somebody into your home. You entertain them. You make space for them. And suffering, the suffering of Jesus in particular, is something that we have to make space for and room for and welcome into our life. But we don't do that. Like, in general, our instinct is to shut suffering out, right? But when Jesus calls us to follow him, he invites us to join him in his suffering, and not only is his true identity revealed in his suffering, in his cross, but our true identity is revealed in our suffering. Suffering reveals the person. 
Suffering reveals the person. You, you don't know yourself until you suffer. <laughs> and you learn what you're made of. And this is true as a general statement in life, but it is especially true when it comes to the nature of our faith. What is the character of my faith? How deep is it? How serious is it? You don't really know until you've had to suffer for it. When it is challenged, when it doesn't make sense, that's when our faith is really revealed to us. Um, You see this truth worked out in the life of Peter. And the Gospel of Mark is really the memoirs of Peter. Um, And he puts himself front and center. Not as an example of heroism, but as an example of what the gospel looks like in our lives. Um, Peter, before the cross, um, this suffering that Jesus was talking about was just incomprehensible to him. It just senseless. It doesn't make any sense. I cannot fit that suffering into my narrative, into who I think the Messiah should be and what he should be doing. And even after Jesus' rebuke and Jesus begins instructing his disciples again and again and again on this need for him to suffer and be rejected, they don't get it, and Peter doesn't get it. And, and Peter thinks he's ready to die for Jesus, and he says, I'm going to die for you. And when Jesus is arrested, he, he uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, he pulls out his sword, and he's whipping his sword around and actually cuts a man's ear off. So there's a sense you're like, oh, maybe Peter was willing to die. Maybe something changed, but no. See, he was willing to die for a certain kind of Messiah. Like, he could die as a Braveheart kind of guy, right? Like, I'm going to battle. Like, I'm going to die, and I'll be remembered as a hero fighting for the country or fighting for Jesus, for the people of Israel. There's a nobility in that kind of suffering. That Je- and the Peter was okay with that, but the suffering of the cross was something else. When, when Jesus is arrested, all of the disciples, they just, they collapse. They lose it. And Peter denies Jesus three times as he's questioned by a servant girl. Again, the cross reveals the character. Suffering reveals our character. Peter was willing to die for Jesus um, when he thought it meant a hero's death, but the cross undoes him. According to Jesus, the attempt to define his identity as the Messiah, without his suffering, is satanic. The attempt to understand Jesus, to have Jesus, but have him without the cross, is satanic. That's basically what Jesus says here. Um, The cross was Jesus' mission and purpose. And any other interpretation that comes, that removes that, is from the evil one. And it is true of the Christian life. To try to remove suffering in the Christian life uh, from the Christian life is satanic. It comes from the evil one. This is precisely what Satan was tempting Jesus in the desert. It's like, I'll give you all the world if you just bow down. You won't have to suffer. You can conquer the world without suffering. That was really the promise. You don't have to suffer. Again, I think in in our age... um, At the modern age of the self, suffering is mostly incomprehensible and meaningless to us. And arguably, is there no other culture in human history in which we are less equipped with internal resources to handle suffering than our own age? And I have watched probably more people lose their faith and walk away from the Christian faith 
uh, because of suffering than anything else. It starts with suffering and then it becomes intellectual. That's generally the trend. Um, God didn't show up. He didn't show up. I'm, I'm experiencing deprivations or I'm experiencing things in my life that my narrative can't make sense of. I can't fit it. It's senseless. It's meaningless. Why would God ever expect me? How could God expect me to go through this, right? I can't, I can't make sense of it. And that oftentimes leads to just like, you throw it all open then. You're like, I just don't know if this is true. I think this is true on all cultures, but especially in our culture, we're so fragile because here's the thing. It's like we, but that's the whole point of a cross. Like a cross is something that your narrative and your story doesn't make sense of. It thwarts, it contradicts who we want to become, the world we want to construct, and reveals us, right? But that's the nature of a cross. The very nature of a cross is something that when, when you look at it, it doesn't make any sense. And so, again, the challenge is after 2,000 years of human history, the cross is such a familiar symbol and it's been thoroughly domesticated. You know, it hangs, you know, largely off of the necks of, like, you know, star athletes and celebrities, and it's tattooed on a million bodies, maybe even more. It's thoroughly familiar to us, and yet it's completely unfamiliar to us. But the whole point of a cross is that it doesn't make sense. To the disciples, the cross was a dark abyss. It was incomprehensible. It was terrifying. God was not there. And I think this is a problem in our own life. The crosses show up in our lives, and we struggle with them, and we can't see them as crosses. You're like, that's not a cross, that's something else. That's something else. God is not there. How could the Lord ever expect me to bear that? But that's the whole point of a cross, right? And the only way you can see God in the midst of that cross is one, to identify it as a cross, but then to begin to look at that cross and that suffering through the cross of Jesus. The cross is a form of suffering in our lives that seems meaningless and pointless and humiliating and unjust and ruinous. And yet God is there. I mean, that's the profoundness of the cross. God is there. Nobody could look at the cross of Jesus and say, God is doing something. He is saving the world. As this man stripped naked, bruised and beaten and bloodied, and dies suffocating to death. Like, oh, God is there saving the world. <laughs> Why is that any different from the things that we suffer? God is in the midst of our suffering. He is there. And when you cling to Jesus, when we put our lives in his life, our suffering can make sense. Not, not make sense like we can explain it or we can embrace it and say, it's all good, I'm so happy for this suffering. And the, and the Christian life never says, look for crosses. Go look for crosses. You need to suffer. No, no. You, trust me, like if you just try to live faithfully as a Christian, suffering will come into your life. You don't have to seek it out. That's masochistic. Don't do that. But suffering will come in your life. Why? Because our lives as Christians, is like, it's living like on a frontal boundary. You know, where you have a warm air mass and a cold air mass. And what happens on frontal boundaries are storms. And the frontal boundary of our life is our life now in this fallen, sinful world and the world to come. It's our fallen and sinful hearts that God has renewed, and our lives now are directed against the grain of the fallen universe. And so you should expect suffering and challenge. 
But here we're confronted with the heart and the mystery of the gospel. See, in the Garden of Eden, God said that if we ate of the tree, we would surely die. But by all appearances, the tree looked very tasty. It looked delicious. I desired it. We desired it. But the tree led to death. But in the cross, which is a very different kind of tree, we find the opposite. In the cross, we see is bad, unappetizing fruit of suffering, pain, and death. And yet Jesus tells us that an embrace of this tree is actually the path to life. Again, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Okay. How is this possible? I'm bringing it to a close. What the disciples could not yet see was the necessity of Jesus' death for them for their salvation and liberation. The cross was an answer to a problem they didn't know they had. They thought that their real problem was the Romans or, you know, hypocritical temple leaders, but they did not see that their problem was actually within them. It was their own hearts, broken, sinful, turned away from God. And we're the same. We tend to think that our greatest problems in life are things outside of us, deprivations or other people or whatever it might be. We think that our real problems are outside of us, but the gospel tells us no. Those are, there are real problems outside of you, to be sure, but your real problem, your deepest problem, is within you're a sinner. You've turned away from God. You've been alienated from God, and this affects everything. And you can't actually be a true self until you recognize that. And this was the whole point of Jesus' suffering and death, that it us, accomplishes for us forgiveness and reconciliation. As the Messiah, he had to experience death in order that we might have life. And when we receive his death in our life and follow him, we're set on the path of life. That is the paradox of the Christian life, right? To be a Christian is to live from the reality that your life is made possible by the death of another. That your life is made possible by the death of another. I think C.S. Lewis sums up what I'm trying to say here quite wonderfully, and I'll close with this. This is from Mere Christianity. He says, give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, and the death of your ambitions, and your favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing in you that has died will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, these are hard words of Jesus um, that sting and are difficult, but are a medicine that if we're able to swallow, uh, leads to everlasting life and grace. 
And the call to die to ourself is really the call to understand what it means to embrace the grace and mercy that you offer to us in your Son. So teach us what it means to do that in our daily lives. I pray that this sermon wouldn't just fly over our heads, but we'd be able to take it, internalize it, and begin to apply in specific ways this call to follow Jesus, even when it hurts. And to know that in his death and his cross, there is strength and there is salvation and resurrection. We give you thanks and praise for him and for your great love for us. In the name of Jesus, amen.